Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hello, this is Todd LaRue, Managing Director of RCL Co. Real Estate Consulting. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCL Co. has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I'm talking to John Sicilian Jr., CEO and co-founder of Sicilian Partners. Sicilian Partners is a prop tech company built around the customer experience for community developers, home builders, and home buyers. They simplify data, digital marketing, and operations by centralizing the entire new home buying process. Sicilian has created a real estate software platform, the XO, that simplifies the management of community development through smart inventory management, lot management, and the most accurate anti-repetition algorithm and sophisticated business reporting in the category. John, thanks so much for joining us as one of the best minds in real estate. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's great to be here, Todd. Thank you. What, so what were you doing professionally prior to founding Sicilian Partners? Sure. So I spent uh, about almost 18 years uh, working in retail. Uh, I actually cut my teeth at Abercrombie & Fitch uh, in the early 2000s, uh, enrolled in their manager and training program post-college, and had the opportunity of climbing that ladder uh, and really kind of getting a, a crash course into what it means to managing teams and people, uh, having a good understanding of, of a P&L oversight. But probably the most foundational theme that was important from Abercrombie & Fitch forward was this concept of creating an experience for your buyer. Uh, and really was very much the foundation for why I've started Sicilian Partners. Terrific. Now, what got you to pivot you know, from the retail side to real estate? Good question. So it's very much a personal point and very near and dear, close to my heart. And uh, I know many, yourself included, Todd, and others know her well. But Kathleen Sicilian uh, is my mom and very much someone that has been uh, very much the bedrock of my life, as you can imagine. And that entrepreneurial spirit of what she's been able to do has really come full circle for me. And I think for many years, I flirted with the idea of trying to do something on my own and really bring some outside industry thinking to a category that it's been so near and dear uh, to my family's business for many years. Uh, for those who don't know Kathy, she is a, a real estate expert in all things brand, brand strategy, and primarily has worked in the same category of residential real estate. The Sicilian Partners is now focused primarily master plan, community development, and production home building. So it's not really what, but whom, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It does. And you've given that exposure to real estate throughout your life, uh, and then you're you know, your your significant time in the retail sector. You know, what did you learn about customers over that period of time in the retail industry, and then your exposure to real estate that you're applying to your business today and looking to apply in the future? 
I want to make sure the audience understands that my point of view of the customer experience is not one that is based on conjecture. Uh, you know, I've had the opportunity of, of buying a production home six years ago and went through a very interesting process with a big national home builder. And I use the word interesting as sort of a, a kinder term than saying uh, less than great, if that makes sense. And in many ways, I came to the realization that there is so much low-hanging fruit in being able to solve the journey for a would-be home buyer that I believe has already been solved in the world of retail. You know, whether it was my time at Abercrombie & Fitch or my time at Michael Kors or my time at Under Armour, there was a lasting theme across all of those brands that all sold something specifically different, yet the undercurrent was lifestyle. And when I think about production home building and this parallel of lifestyle and why that's so important and why the purchase of a new home should be the single most important purchase in one's lifetime, it should be treated as such. However, it's not. And when you think about what retail has done across a variety of real buying channels, right? So there's been, and that's an overused word, but I have to say it, there's this term called digital transformation that is very real. It is not just soapbox. And I believe since the advent of the iPhone in 2007, and this evolution of digital commerce, e-commerce, and really these modern brick and mortar experiences that are being provided, why can't that same level of experience be brought forth in model homes, welcome centers across the country as today's home buyer is looking to engage with the excitement of living in a community, living in a planned community, and buying and building a new home? However, I believe there's a massive opportunity where all these digital tools are front and center. Our clients are buying them here, there, and everywhere, but there's one foundational miss. And that is in order for those technologies and those tools to come to life, you have to be able to hire the right team to make them realized. And I think oftentimes when you're working in an industry that is very much insular, that is adopting new methods of doing business, understanding how technology can make a difference for their business is still a new concept. So whereas retail has very much solved it at least 10 years ago, I believe, Todd, that our category of real estate is just beginning that process. Now, that's a terrific setup. And for the broader conversation, which we're going to get to in a minute, and particularly that home buying process, which uh, you and I have discussed uh, at length over the past uh, several years and how it can be improved. But let's kind of pivot back uh, to you, the individual, John. Let's talk a little bit about your personal life, getting into where you went to school, your kind of interests and hobbies, and get uh, the audience to know you a little bit. So where do I begin? Well, I'll be formal. Uh, I, I went to business school at, at Villanova University. I actually enrolled in their executive MBA program. Um, I got my BA in organizational psychology from Duquesne. A university in Pittsburgh. I'm someone who very much uh, loves people and believes that in order for great things to happen, uh, you have to really focus on teams and people to make them deliver. And it's why my undergraduate degree is focused in organizational psychology. And in my years of retail, I always, again, wanted to sort of pursue a formal degree in business uh, and then did so by enrolling and getting my executive MBA from Villanova, which is a top 10 program nationally. And it was a wonderful experience. So on the educational side, that's sort of what that looks like. And I think that education is, a, is an evergreen type dynamic where it's not just about the transaction of attending university, but also trying to better yourself in a variety of different ways. Uh, I'm also an active member of the Urban Land Institute, uh, which is a very, very important group 
to me and, and to my family and to my company. Uh, I'm also part of Forbes Real Estate Council member, which is exciting because there's a lot of great thought leadership and collaboration that takes place there. I'm also a member of the Community Development Council CDC Goal, uh, which is part of ULI, and we're also members of the Housing Innovation Alliance. So a combination of both education and the ability to kind of work on those professional pieces, I think, are something that are, are, are ever growing. You know, and a little bit more about me. I'm married to Jennifer. Jennifer is our CFO. She is an absolute rock uh, for me in every single way. Uh, we have two beautiful, healthy girls, Estella and Delilah. Uh, they are both uh, a handful, but a lot of fun. And I'm an avid cyclist and triathlete. Done a lot of different things. Uh, I'm an Ironman finisher for what's that worth and who's listening in, who cares? It's exciting, but an important part of what defines me. And I, I'm very much uh, an avid triathlete as we continue through. Lastly, uh, philanthropy, something super important to me. I take part in a variety of different things here locally in New Hope, Pennsylvania and the surrounding area. And we are so eager for COVID-19 to sort of ease and recede so we can do more of the on-site physical interaction of helping others that truly need it. So I hope that's that's okay. It's a lot, Todd, but that's that's me in a nutshell. No, that's terrific. And you know, your sort of approach to business and what you're doing today is really informed by a variety of things, including your formal education, your your education growing up and real estate family. Uh, as well as all the growth and development you've experienced as uh, being part of a family, a growing family at that. Finishing an Ironman, I think that's a pretty big deal. I would be highlighting that as well. So let's talk a little more about kind of what are those some of those things that are important to you in your life. Obviously, health is a big one. You can dive down a little bit more into that and how that sort of impacts or influences uh, how you do business and, and so forth. So I think a lot of times when you speak to other executives at all different ages, the question is always posed around this concept of balance or prioritization. And, you know, for me, uh, one of the one of the things that I continue to learn, whether it's through, you know, reading uh, or, or studying or just admiring others in the distance, um, you know, there's a uh, there's a famous psychologist who's well published. He's the chair of psychology uh, at University of Pennsylvania's Wharton Business School. Uh, his name is Adam Grant. And Adam does a lot of really important pieces centered around understanding that balance of both professional and personal. And one of the things I've gleaned from his research and his writing is this concept that really it's about bringing those things together that I think oftentimes when we think about priority or think about balance, we believe that there's sort of a give and take. And my approach is, is a little bit different. And then it's really about understanding, taking action and what action items matter most to you and how you can balance those things that give you the most return on investment. And that return on investment can be time, money, thought, whatever that that sort of ROI is to life, I think is still applicable. And one of the ways that I think about that is making sure that there is this foundational, fundamental balance every single day. That as much time as I make for my business, I make for my family, and I make for self. And I think often the disconnect for so many executives that I meet and engage with is that they always make time for work. They sometimes make time for family, but they never make time for self. And one of the ways that I continue to learn and evolve, and a lot of this, again, does come from Adam Grant's studies, is this concept of working on self and recognize that in order for you to ever find balance, you have to understand what makes you tick. Having that self-awareness, prioritizing yourself, 
holding yourself to a level of standard. And that level of standard goes across healthfulness in the sense of what we put in our bodies, what we eat, uh, how we engage, the food choices we make, how we exercise. And exercise can be something as simple as just standing up for 10 minutes or walking for 10 minutes or taking a one minute deep breath, whatever that is, to really focus internally. Because Todd, I'm very passionate about this. If you can't get yourself focused, it's very difficult to be your whole self for others. And I don't want to get too highly spiritual on today's podcast, but I think it's important to recognize that that's where the balance begins is within. And then externally, you can begin to, to, to strike that balance between family and work. It takes a lot of discipline to do that. And we all struggle with it. I don't know that, I don't know anyone that does not. Uh, I found this interesting. You mentioned to me this action priority matrix. Can you explain what that is? I think it's kind of an interesting framework. Sure, absolutely. So there is something called an action priority matrix, which is really cool. Uh, Imagine, if you will, sort of a classic y-axis, x-axis kind of put together. And in these quadrants are sort of things that are low impact or high impact versus low effort and high effort. And this is this whole concept about focusing on self and recognizing what this looks like. So imagine that you're going to put together these quadrants and focus on things that are quick wins, major tasks, thankless tasks, or just fill-ins, things that you're just kind of doing throughout the week. And I found this to be a really exciting exercise. As you can imagine, Todd, as, as you're trying to build a business here at Sicilian Partners, trying to raise a family and trying to better yourself, you have to make sure you recognize what things are most important, what things are just sort of things you're always going to do, hence the fill-ins, what things are thankless tasks that might require high impact to your time and your day. And it's important to kind of look at that and strike that balance. Uh, Is it something that you do weekly? Not really. I think it's something you would do maybe monthly or every other month to sort of revisit what are the big things I'm trying to accomplish this month, whether it's something as simple as drinking more water, (laughs) which would be a quick win to something as uh, complex as I want to, uh, you know, close 10 new community developers this month as we continue to grow our business, right? It's sort of a interesting way to look at it in the sense of simplicity, because I think what we, what we forget sometimes is how important writing down, focusing inward to say to yourself, these are things I want to do. My little matrix lives in my notebook that I live within every day for work in different pages of that workbook that I can quickly reference. So again, it's a very quick understanding exercise to say to yourself, what week over week gives me the greatest impact, arguably with the lowest effort. And I would always always argue that is where you should start because it is my belief that quick wins can equal great wins. It's sort of that snowball effect, right? If you can commit to yourself, okay, I'm going to drink eight glasses of water today. I did it on Monday. I did it on Tuesday. I did it on Wednesday. Okay, I've got a rhythm. Now maybe I can do something a little bit more exaggerated and you know be better at a certain thing, whatever that is for our, our listeners today. And I believe in that mantra of being able to push it forward by being disciplined on the little stuff will equate to achieving good things on the larger stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, it really does. And, you know, I think that framework allows you to prioritize, but also give you confidence in that your priorities are straight. And, you know, with that, though, I mean, do you ever feel vulnerable? Like where, you know, where do you feel those weaknesses come up? Um, you know, even though you're, you're giving this incredible uh, thought and attention, you know, what, what kind of pops up as, as a vulnerability occasionally? Yeah. I mean, I think, and that's a great question. You know, I think for 
for me, it's it's sort of you know managing my my internal vulnerabilities and, and trying to find ways to almost overcompensate for them, which sometimes is not always the best method. You know, I think often I have you know just general insecurity about maybe decisions that I'm trying to make internally or externally, and that could be something as simple as you know coaching my five and a half year old on the right things to do when she has a conflict at school, to coaching my co-founder and chief strategy officer Phil on you know, a, a push from one of our board members about something we should achieve, right? It's about sort of striking that balance of being able to, you know, be able to give thoughtful, regular feedback in a way that makes sense. And you're giving the right impact both personally and professionally in those moments. But I catch myself, I think, often second guessing, right? Because you want to be able to give the best feedback you can in the moment. And whether you're parenting or whether you're coaching, I do feel like they're within tandem. I compensate for it by trying to be as prepared as I can. And as most of our listeners know, Todd, as you know, as a parent, you can't always be that prepared because sometimes new things arise every day. However, I can say that uh, from a professional perspective, I think that the more, again, you're working on self, the more you understand what what makes you tick, what your how level your level of self-awareness is, the better you can be and feeling you can be more consistent in giving critical feedback in a way that you're heard the right way. I think oftentimes we're nervous to give that critical feedback because, well, do we hold ourselves that level of standard? You know, that's that's another thing to kind of think about. But to me, that is really it, is the greatest vulnerability is that level of second guessing, making sure I'm prepared enough to give the right information at the right time, because sometimes that feeling of, uh-oh, was that the right information can be very nervous, as you can imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, some level of insecurity is is healthy, right? And it's just it's managing to what level uh that that rises to. And you know, I talk with people about this quite a bit moving up in their career. Uh the older you get, the more those insecurities sort of fall away. And and you're able to, you know, let some of those things go and uh and really work on you know the ones that are uh perhaps you know holding you back the most. That's a great great insight into that. Thank you for answering that question. I know it's not an easy one. Let's move on to one more you know, personal from your background. The biggest mistake, you know, I always hate this question, but it's, you know, it's it's something we all have something in our past that sticks out and and perhaps either you know cause you to pivot to go to a different direction or to rethink something altogether. And we'll love to for you to share uh, one of those experiences. Sure. So I think I've made lots of mistakes. Uh, and I think that I'm proud of those mistakes because not to sound kitschy, but mistakes are learning moments. You know, one of the things I tell my team every single day here is that if you are not failing, that means you're not trying. And if you're not trying, that means that you don't know the fact that we have to build something. And I get very excited about the idea of every single one of my teammates being able to try and be willing to fail so they can either one, have a learning moment, or two, at least understand that they really executed to their big idea. And I mean this. And I think for me, uh, I've had a lot of remarkable opportunities in my career, uh, and I have had a lot of really exciting experiences in my career. But when that question is, is often asked, what's the biggest sort of professional or career mistake you felt like you've ever made? It brings me right back 10 years ago, 12, about 12 years ago, really, when I was working for Michael Kors, I was overseeing the New York, New Jersey region market for them between the city, between Manhattan and New Jersey. 
And uh, at the time, things were going very well. I was performing at a high level, but I had been at this sort of market director, district manager role for some time. So across previous brands before joining MK, I had worn that hat before. So as you can imagine, Todd, I'm sure you've seen the same thing, coaching people climbing the ranks. I felt like I was really ready for next. I was ready for next. And that opportunity wasn't presented to it at Michael Kors, but you know, because it was a, it was a filled job wreck and I didn't have the chance to actually apply. However, I was courted by an ex uh, an ex manager who I used to work for to join Quicksilver as their director of retail for the East Coast, overseeing a much larger region, much larger P and L, salary and uh, title change. When I went back to my reporting manager at Michael Kors and told him about the opportunity presented, he basically matched the salary. But I was so caught up by the job title. I took it. I took it because I felt that I was ready for next. I felt that I wanted that title on my CV. I wanted the opportunity of demonstrating growth and that I could do that role and do it well. 11 months later, I was laid off uh, because of a reduction in force. I was sort of the last man in, first guy out as the executive team pivoted once again after just about 11 or 12 months in role with sort of a new way of management. And ironically, the company Quicksilver filed chapter 11 about nine months later and went under a new LLC called Board Riders Inc. And that's a whole different conversation. But what I'll share with the group that's important to understand there is that I missed what really happened. My reporting manager at Michael Kors said, we value you. You bring value to us. We want to demonstrate that we can't give you the title, but we can match you from a salary perspective. Like, trust me, we will get you to what next looks like. Here you go. And I didn't hear that. I didn't see that. I was, you know, um, 11 years younger, less experienced. And I was just focused on this title. And I think that happens to many of us as we try to get to next, that it's, it's, we get so self-indulgent and what we think it should be that we missed the entire opportunity in front of us uh, where, you know, I, I probably could have had a storied career at Michael Kors, but Todd, I'll tell you, I might not be sitting in this chair talking to you guys today. If that was the case, as you know, MK's done well and continues to do very well for quite some time. Really interesting. You know, when people come to me and ask those types of questions, like, Hey, I really want this title or uh, I deserve this comp and so forth and make a pivot to another job or another industry or whatever the case may be and searching for that validation that they're ready for next. Often forget, you know, the, the group of people with whom you work uh, are just as important and are, are those who are going to get you uh, to next before, you know, just accepting that job and, 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 and making a move for the sake of move's sake. So it, it's really, it's really interesting. I like, really like that story. And I think it's uh, probably a common one that many have experienced. So you've, you've been sharing a lot of, of your insights and kind of how you attack business and life. You know, what are some resources you might recommend to someone that is you know, looking to gain these types of insights, whether into real estate or becoming a better leader or, or something like that? So let me, let me start with becoming a better leader first and foremost. And one of the things I think is very important is recognizing that it's this rule of three. Uh, one, identify a colleague, a contemporary, someone that you absolutely trust. Two, identify someone that maybe has worked underneath you or maybe is just a skosh junior to you. And three, identify someone who's well above you, generationally above you, that is, has significantly more experience and maybe a, a significantly different point of view. 
And make sure you have a level of trust of those three individuals that can allow you to get unbridled, unfiltered feedback in a way that can make a difference with sort of what your opportunities are, what your strengths are, and really try to hone in on your strengths. I have always found that the feedback you get from a contemporary is often very different than the feedback you would get from someone that maybe works for you. And of course, the same for someone above you. I have found through mentorship, I get the most when it comes to becoming a better leader, an environment that allows you to sort of ask questions unabated, unfiltered, you know, Ray Dalio's famous radical candor dynamic, right? Really having that radical candor with an individual that can give you feedback because you have that established trust, I think is something we should all strive to have with our personal and professional relationships. From a resource perspective, and let's go to the, obviously our, our industry in real estate, I find ULI to be incredible. Um, ULI is not great just globally, but at the regional level as well. You know, both regionally and locally, you know, here in Philadelphia, there is a great group. I think that it's being able to build on those groups to kind of learn what's happening in your regional and local area is super important. Um, you know, and get in other parts of the real estate sector, not just for me, it's just residential real estate, but learn more about things such as commercial or retail, or even within residential real estate, getting away from single family, but multifamily and single family for rents and all these emerging trends that we're seeing happen now more than ever. So I do think, again, ULI is a great resource. And then besides that, read as much as you can. Try to find different subjects and topics that are great. Identify things that you don't know. You know, right now I'm 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 reading a couple different books. Um, I'm reading one in particular by Michael Lewis, who's a phenomenal author. Those who don't know Michael Lewis, he's probably most famous for either uh, Moneyball or The Blind Side. Uh, I'm currently reading a book called Premonition, uh, which is this whole concept of understanding why pandemics are real and being able to level set around that. Uh, and I feel like with everything you read, I'm a nonfiction person, but everything that I read, you always learn something. So, you know, regardless of your age and experience, I encourage everybody to read as much as humanly possible because it just makes you generally smarter uh, <laughs> as an individual, in my opinion. No question. And, and you and I were talking about that very thing as it relates to leadership. And there's all kinds of books on leadership, but comment, if you will, for a second on, you know, the difference between management and leadership and how you know, people can participate in leadership as they may like, but, you know, management may be a better path for them. Great, great point. I'm very, I have very strong, very strong opinions on this. So for, for our audience, if you're listening, please don't feel like um, you have to agree with me. It's just a point of view, but I think it matters. Meaning, most people can be really excellent managers. I believe that you can train folks to be managers in a variety of different ways, understand the standard of the company, fulfill the role and job requisition to a T, be a great communicator, deliver on what you say you're going to deliver, understand what those look like. But being a leader is a skosh different. In my opinion, I believe leadership is not for everyone. Leadership is about being able to constantly create vision that people want to follow and being on top of that vision in a way that makes others want to listen. It makes others want to believe in something so much they are willing to follow you, whatever that goal or, um, you know, kind of final conquest may or may not be, if that makes sense. For me, I think I've worked for only a handful of leaders, but a lot of great managers. And that's the misnomer. I think that people think that being a leader means that you're a great manager. No, 
a leader is a leader. And put that in a separate sort of category or phylum. It is really, I've worked for phenomenal managers that are a pleasure to work for, that set clear expectations and boundaries that, you know, you are in lockstep with how they do it. I've also had the privilege of, you know, working with great visionary leaders that understand where the company is meant to go and why we do what we do and create the brand standard and brand ethos from scratch. That is not easy. And that's what I'm saying is that to me, a leader is able to take nothing and turn it into something where others believe in it and want to bring it to life. And I think that's important to understand. Are there leadership competencies within managerial development? Of course there are. But is there a separation between leader and manager? Yes, there is. And I just want to make sure the group understands and the audience understands where I'm coming from in that point of view. Yeah, I think it's a great point. And you, you may also have great leaders that are terrible managers. You know, they, they might have the vision, but perhaps not the skill set you know, on the implementation side to make it happen. Uh, which is where the team comes into play. <laughs> Todd, I agree 100%. I think I should have said that. I, I Many leaders, you know, I would argue that a lot of leaders are not the best managers. They're not tactical. They don't set clear expectations. To your point, they need that team around them to counter that balance of great vision with great execution. Uh, so I completely agree with you. Absolutely. All right, John, let's pivot back to what we talked about before, sort of the basis of your business. And you and I have talked in the past about how many of your clients invest in a bunch of smart tech, but they don't really have the right teams to implement or and properly leverage that tech to gain meaningful returns. You know, why does that happen, you think? And how is Sicilian Partners addressing that issue? Let me let me try to slow this one down a little bit because it's not a uh, apples for apples type answer. Um, where I want to where I want to start is. I do believe that our industry is on a precipice of making some really important decisions, and it really is because of COVID-19. I think that for the first time ever, the concept of adopting new technologies or new software to help these businesses become better was always an idea. And now they have to be realized because the consumer is shopping, the home buyer is shopping at such a level of veracity. It's hard to counterbalance that without really being digitized, especially, you know, six, nine, 10 months ago where model homes were closed, welcome centers were closed, yet people were still perusing builder websites, community websites, wanting to see available inventory, wanting to understand what was available where. And these developers and these builders are trying to countermanage that in some way, shape or form. And now I think what we've learned is that we need technology and software, the right technology and the right software to help manage the day-to-day of what that can look like. The challenge comes in to where we speak to a variety of different clients who have made investments in enterprise-level CRM solutions, enterprise-level marketing automation solutions, yet and examples of, of both are on the CRM side would be Lasso CRM or Salesforce CRM. On the marketing automation side, examples would be HubSpot, Marketo, Acton, ActiveCampaign. These are all real examples that are being in and used across the country. But the reality is that the drivers of these systems and technologies are not there. So imagine, as, as most community developers will attest, their teams are small, 
they're nimble, they have the ability to get things done in short order, and maybe they make some technology investments that they think will make a difference to their small team. But the problem is now is that that investment in technology will see no ROI because no one is driving it. I made a really funny analogy to one of our clients out of Florida, out of Orlando to be specific. And I said to them, you know, it's like you have 10 beautiful sports cars all parked in the garage and no one with a license to drive them. So why invest in these beautiful sports cars if no one can even appreciate and drive them? And I got a laugh out loud, an audible laugh from the person I was speaking with to then uh, an absolute agreement and affirmation that you're right. We need to find a way to unlock how and why these investments were made and how to get the most from them. So I think that I want to start there to make sure that, that Todd, for the audience, we all recognize that these investments are being made. The question I always ask back is why? What are you trying to get out of this solution to make better and more informed business decisions? Is it going to sell houses faster? Is it going to sell lots faster to builders? Is it going to make you know your customer in a better way? Is it going to create a, a, a better frictionless customer experience in the welcome center or model home? Like if it's not doing those things, why are we, why are we buying all this stuff? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that is the, um, the part of, I think of your business, which has been most interesting to me is what, you know, what is the problem that you were presented to solve? And that's where I want to pivot to the XO and what, you know, the, the problems that we are presented with between developer and builder, between consumer and developer, between consumer and builder, uh, have been going on for decades. And so let's talk a bit, a little bit about the XO platform and, and what it's designed to do. So we call it the XO because we feel like it's, it's sort of kitschy. Uh, the XO is, is really the balance of experiential data and operational data and the confluence of those things coming together into a unique platform. And I want to affirm to the audience, there is no other tool like it in our category. Uh, here's why. We built this technology for community developers with community developers understanding the real pain points that you deal with every single day. Examples of those pain points are inventory management, lot management, communication between developer and architect, communication between builder and developer, places that have very strict anti-repetition or anti-monotony rules that, well, gosh, I have to wait now for the architectural review committee to get back to us on this approved pattern for this elevation A. And now I'm chasing down builder X while the future resident is waiting and waiting and waiting for approval to then be able to go to the design studio to, to identify the fits and finishes, right? It's this dynamic that there are so many moving pieces in placemaking and in community development. We are trying to simplify that. And it all started at Walsh. Republic Property Group had this has this beautiful community uh, outside of Dallas-Fort Worth called Walsh. And it is a very remarkable place with over 14 home builders, 150-page pattern book, very strict anti-repetition, anti-monotony rules. And the CEO, uh, the co-CEO of Republic Property Group, Tony Ruggieri said, how can we manage the relationship between us and builder, us architect and builder, us architect, builder, and home buyer in a digital way. No more paper maps, no more email, no more weird phone calls and chasing. How can we have it be singularly oriented in one sort of platform? 
And that is where the birth of the EXO really came to life. And we were able to bring it over the last almost three years now, actually four years in 22, into what it is today, into this enterprise level product that is built really bespoke for our category, Todd. And what it's doing, I call it sometimes a Swiss army knife of tech. What it's doing is it's answering all those pain points that developers deal with day in and day out. And our, our clients are seeing immediate and lasting value in ways that are better than we even hypothesized. And so, you know, as this product has evolved and this platform has evolved, you know, what do you feel like, uh, you know, next steps are? Where is it going to head from here? Uh, developers have been extremely happy with the product. It has improved their efficiency. Has it improved their sales cycle uh, with the builders and the consumer? And which in turn is going down to that bottom line, that return on investment. So you're able to actually track that, correct? And, and see what that return is in real time. So where do you see this heading from here at this point? So first and foremost, I want to make sure it's important to know that Walsh is a great use case example as you know, rule of one. We recognize that not every community has 14 builders. There is this remarkable elasticity of our product that we could work in 300 acres or we can work in 30,000 acres. That, that doesn't necessarily matter. What matters is that we are trying to allow our community developer clients to feel like they're better and more supported. And they have a communication tool at their fingertips that allow them to do things in a way they've never done before. And it really is about that focus of the end-to-end side of community development. So we're right now are working on two other pieces that are coming to life here by the middle of Q3. One is a real lot management tool. So if anyone's ever been into uh, an NPC office or met with a, a land developer, there's always those massive spreadsheets that are like 11 by 17 legal that show kind of the time of which lots stay on market, how long they're on market until they get sold to builder, and then really understanding how that is impacted across every builder that does a takedown on lots and what that looks like. So we already are digitizing that for a handful of our clients, and we're doing it in ways that are is just is just changing the speed of which, uh, you know, an SVP of land can actually see things. No more having input via Excel. All those formulas are done through our unique algorithm and we're able to bring those to life in real way. And then within that is this sort of other piece that we're working on that if you're looking at a community that might be multi-phased, how do you use the first phase to inform the second and third and so on, right? Wouldn't it be great to be ahead of the fact that, oh gosh, you know, I don't want to gap out because things are so crazy. When you use our product, you're never going to gap out. You're always going to be in front of what that looks like. So I want to make sure that that makes sense. And there's some alignment there um, first, Todd. So you can ask a couple more questions if you feel like I'm, I'm speaking lingo that maybe not everyone will understand. Well, gapping out, you know, simply meaning you run out of a popular lot type uh, because you couldn't anticipate that you were going to run out of that popular lot type. And, and so seeing in real time the types of products that are selling to whom they're selling, what type of consumer, uh, and understanding what types of consumers you're not capturing, just as importantly, that can be integrated and implemented into the next phase of development, uh, can help you help the developer, help the builder, not only enhance their sales, but enhance their market penetration and market share. So I think it's it's you know, really important that having those optics looking ahead toward the next phase based upon real-time performance of what's going on today is really fascinating. And, and also the, the product is, is very visual. 
so uh, it, it makes that decision making that much easier. I was going to talk more about the the customer experience, and you know, you and I have talked about one of the most common uh, emotional responses to home buying is crying. Uh, it's a terrible experience, and 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 so you know what. What is the EXO doing to help improve that customer experience and you know, woo that customer uh, to that particular development? Right. So I want to make sure that one of the things that's exciting is this evolution of, of who's looking at homes today. And you know, we recognize there's 83 million uh, millennials across the country who are really you know, getting ready to be in the market to buy a new home. They're actively doing it as we speak. Uh, in my recent ULI council meeting, we just talked about sort of this incredible insurgents of millennials and how they're navigating and shopping. The reality is we need to be prepared to know our consumer before they're even coming to our beautiful community website. And it's important to digitize that experience in a way that allows the future resident to utilize this sort of immersive 3D experience. And we do that really with a, a remarkable map engine that we have. So we have this incredible map that allows us to showcase the community at large in a way that is seamless. So imagine going to walshtx.com or you know, perusing Lake Nona's Laureate Park or taking a look at Sterling Ranch, if you will, or any of these beautiful places and being able to understand what's available where in real time across Builder is one big step. The second big step is being able to showcase amenities and points of interest that matter. All of these communities are anchored in walking trails or golf or crystal lagoons or places that create avarice for the place you want to live. Don't you want to be able to showcase those things, feature those things in a way that aren't static and give you, uh, you being the future buyer, an experience unlike any other? And so we are doing that today and I think doing it really well. You know, And what that's doing for the marketing side of the team for developers has been thrilling. They've seen conversions go up. Dwell time is over three and a half minutes per unique visit on the interactive map. And we're seeing this across the country. Uh, we're giving a higher and better quality lead to our builders. So, you know, Todd, what's really exciting is for the first time ever, you know, a developer is able to deliver to their builder, hey, John Smith and family are looking at lot B and lot C. They're looking to build with you, Toll Brothers, and in this example, just for fun. And they want to spend between 500 and 600K. And these are the elevations they're looking at. So instead of, and, and forgive my crassness here, the blind leading the blind, now a developer can take a lead through the interactive map experience and deliver it to a builder in a way that is highly qualified, right? You're talking about name, location, lot, elevation, price point. Okay, these are these are all key factors that answer the customer experience. So now when the builder sales rep from Toll calls John Smith and family and says, hello, Mr. Smith, I saw you were looking at elevation one, two, three. You're looking to spend between six and 800K, again, as an example. We would love to talk through those elevations and floor plans with you. You've already listened and heard to what your future home buyer wants. So you're no longer selling, you're showing. You're engaging. It's very different. And we're getting some remarkable feedback, Todd, from our builder sales reps that are using this product across the country. Today, we have over 400 builder sales reps that use the XO every day. And for our audience, Todd, I want to make sure they understand Sicilian Partners, our client is the community developer. 
But the product who uses the XO day in and day out, outside of the developer at the executive level and other developer parts, if you will, is the builder. The builder is the one logging into the XO to ensure that they're in lockstep with what's happening in the community at large. And it's transforming how they are doing business with developers every single day. The feedback, literally, I made a joke, Todd, to Phil the other day, is I like to get some negative feedback. I want to get critical feedback so we know where and how to orient. We just finished a customer survey, and the surveys have been glowing thus far, Todd. It's, I'm not exaggerating. It is it is exciting, but it's also like, okay, but how do we get some great critical feedback to be able to sort of continue to help our clients and our end users? Sorry for the, the little verboseness there, but I wanted to share that little uh, Easter egg. No, and I think I think what's also been interesting is the the adoption rate by builders. I think developers have been skeptical of builder adoption of of these types of platforms, and I think you've proven that they're more than capable and willing to participate if they see that you know return on their time spent um, you know populating the information necessary to uh, to expedite communication between a builder developer and to consumer. Uh, and, you know, and I think the um, the other piece to this that you've mentioned before is it's providing predictability uh, for the consumer. They pick out a lot and they know pretty much what they can get rather than they pick out a lot they fall in love with. They learn the home that they fell in love with doesn't work on that lot. And the process continues and it goes and cycles back and cycles back. And then you get to the tears. So um, that. Yeah, that level of predictability, I think, is, is hugely important. One last thing on this, uh, John, is around, you mentioned something around resident you know, loyalty and, and how you know, some of these tools can enhance that resident, you know, resident loyalty throughout the uh, say life cycle of a particular project. Thank you, Todd. Yeah, agreed. Um, what I will say is that a lot of this is sort of the kind of my retail mantra coming full circle. You know, I think none of us are or sorry, I should say all of us are familiar with this concept of, you know, being a, a regular customer or, or, or buyer of a brand that we love. And there's usually incentive to engage with that brand one way or another. And I don't mean you buy nine and get the 10th free. I mean, because that you are a frequent shopper, you are given incentive to be able to do and peruse other things, whether it's special to, special limited release product or other ways, the concept of loyalty uh, for brand engagement is not a, a new concept. The challenge that I've weighed with many of our clients and the conversation that I have, and we've got uh, a prototype in effect, uh, but I'll, I'll keep it there just from an IP perspective, is that we are working with or working on the ability for a community developer to no longer feel like they're transactional. Meaning, here's the big question. When a developer sells a lot to a builder, and then that home and that lot sells. And then there's a marketing kind of vague back to the developer and all phases are done. And the developer moves on to the next big project. Why are we not engaging with, why is the developer not engaging with the residents living in by and large? That's a big question because every day or every week they get a, a Val pack in their mailbox to incent them to buy and shop in the community at large, whether it's at the grocery store or the local vendor, dry cleaner, pizza shop, whatever. Why is that the case? The developer creates this incredible place, this beautiful community, highly amenitized, highly inclusive, uh, a chance for everyone to kind of be part, grow, go to school, learn, live. 
Yet the developer never looks back at the residents. And the question is why? It is our belief that there is an untapped opportunity, and I know many are talking about it, but many don't know how to unlock it, of being able to engage with residents after the sale. And I'll say to you, Todd, that many of our legacy clients, and I'm talking about uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen who have been doing this for 40 or 50 years, have sort of a different take on that. Well, you know, uh, they buy a house and that's it. You know, it's not a recurring theme. And I will politely say to them, that's just not true because they're living in, you know, something ranch or something ridge or, you know, a great name ranch, if you will. And they're living in these places. They is the residents are living in these places and we're turning our back on them versus being able to create a higher level of incentive that gives the developer a chance to have a new revenue stream while giving the resident a really exciting sort of way of living. Why can we do it on cruise ships? Why can we do it in theme parks? Why can't we do it in these beautiful communities? That's the question. It's a really good question. And as we have talked about consistently, you know, the the master plan community business uh, has, has struggled because it is such a large business and uh, to, to really respond to those needs. And, and so I think, you know, what you're doing at Sicilian Partners is uh, uh, very innovative and thoughtful way of uh, resolving some of these problems. John, with that, thank you for joining us for this latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. We look forward to the next one. Todd, thank you so much. Always great to be with you and, and be with the RCL Co. team. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. If you're interested in learning more about RCL Co., go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at rclco. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show. 